You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Well, good morning. How are we? You got an extra hour of sleep, right? Yeah. Well, I absolutely love teaching the scriptures. It's like my favorite thing to do. And so having the chance to be here the last several days, I am just like overflowing with joy. So it's been a wonderful experience. I live in Nashville now, and we're used to really great hospitality, but I tell you what, Nashville ain't got nothing on you guys. So uh, I've had a lot of great experiences. I got to see a grizzly bear while here. So this is pretty cool, and uh, probably the, the most energetic event that I had a chance to experience other than the conference that we had was I got to experience a Cougs game last night. Yeah. And we were there with 30 seconds to go on that pass to the corner of the end zone. So uh, it was fantastic. And I, I've heard a lot about uh, the Vandals as well. So for those of you who are connected to the Vandals, another amazing school. So I, I feel like this is becoming home really quick. So, well, I have the privilege today to talk about a story from John chapter 8. But in order for us to understand what's going on in John chapter 8, we got to understand what just happened in John chapter 7. Because John 7 is laying the foundation for its extension that goes into John 8. So notice with me the first two verses of John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Anytime you come across a festival, pause and ask yourself, what is this festival all about? Because John assumes you already understand everything going on with the Feast of Booths. So let's get ourselves caught up on what's going on here. This is known in Hebrew as Sukkot. Let me hear you say Sukkot. Sukkot means tabernacles. It can mean booths. So this festival, which is one of the three main pilgrim festivals that we see introduced into the Bible in the Old Testament, that all the religious Jews from around the world were supposed to stream up to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so in your text, it'll be translated as the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes you'll see the Feast of Booths like we saw today. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering, and you'll understand why that is in just a few moments. But there are a number of passages that help us to understand what was going on with Sukkot including this last reference, the Mishnah, which is a Jewish text from the time just following Jesus that gives us a window in what's going on in that first century world. And so I want to read just a few verses from Leviticus 23 to help us to see when this festival took place and how long it was. So we read this. In Leviticus 23, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying on the 15th day of the seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. So the seventh month on the 15th day starts this seven day festival called the feast of booths or Sukkot in Hebrew. 
Now, this passage will go on to talk about how the people are supposed to live in temporary shelters during these seven days. And this is even practiced up to this very day. So this is in Israel today, setting up the temporary shelters. This is in the old city of Jerusalem. This is above uh, an apartment complex also in Jerusalem. And the idea is, is that you reside in these temporary shelters to recall how God provided for the Israelites during their vulnerable time in the desert for 40 years. So this kind of a desert, this is in the Sinai. This is one of my friends. He has not passed out. He's just trying to get more of the experience. And uh, it's a very vulnerable experience that Israel had for those 40 years. And so when you come together for Sukkot, you are celebrating God's provision for something that has happened in the past, which was connected to an event. But it also had something going on for the present, and that is in connection to a Thanksgiving celebration that all of your summer and winter crops have been brought in. In fact, it was the Puritans, when they constructed the idea of Thanksgiving, they built that around Sukkot and the idea of Sukkot. And so it's a Thanksgiving festival in the present. So you're commemorating God's provision in the past with an event, with God's provision in the present with an agricultural piece, but then there is also a plea for God's provision for the future. And that's what made Sukkot really unique. And then to understand what the plea for the future was, we need to understand where we are at in the midst of the seasons. Now, in the land of Israel, there are only two seasons. There is a rainy season that runs from mid-October to mid-April and a dry season that runs from mid-April to mid-October. So only two seasons. Now, I grew up in Michigan and we only had two seasons as well. Winter and construction. <laughs> is that true around here? Yes, some of you are like, yes, it is. All right, so we all understand what it is to have two seasons. Now, when it comes to the rainy season, rain is significant anywhere you are, but particularly in the land of Israel where it's 70% desert. Water is life. And in the land of Israel, water was not in abundance like it was for other nations, like Egypt, what had, which had the Nile, Babylon, Persia, Assyria, Tigris, Euphrates, these massive bodies of water would provide for the country. In fact, when the Israelites are just about ready to come into the land after spending 40 years in the desert, God tells them that the land you are entering is not like the land from where you came from, i.e. Egypt. God says, this is a land that drinks rain from heaven, meaning the land doesn't get what the land needs if God doesn't open the floodgates from heaven. And so God brings to the people what they called living 
water. Water was water that was moving. It came from the hand of God. So a river was considered living water because God provided that water in order for it to run. That God would bring water from heaven. And so when you just look at the bodies of water in the land of Israel and Jordan, which is now connected to Jordan today, in the land of Israel on the west side, you have the Mediterranean Sea. It's a sea, right? You can't drink it. You have a fresh uh, body of water in the northern part, Sea of Galilee, but it's very small. It's 13 miles long. It's seven miles wide. Can't provide for the country. You have a big body of water in the south, the Dead Sea, but the reason why they call it the Dead Sea is because the sucker's dead. So the salt content is through the roof. And then you have a very small river known as the Jordan River. It is just a puny river by way of width. And so in order for the country to survive, they had to capture every bit of rain that came from God in order to have what they need. Let me show you how one particular place did this. This is called, a city is called Arad. It sits in what's known as the Negev Basin. And the Negev is where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were. And this is a picture of the excavation site of what's known as the Early Bronze Age area. This is 5,000 years ago. So this is 3,000 years before the time of Jesus. And one of the things that you notice from an aerial photo like this is that there is a depression on the left side. And at the bottom of that depression is a cistern. And because this was an area that only gets somewhere around 10 inches of rain a year, they collected every drop that fell that they could. And so the reason why they construct a cistern down there is so when it rains, all the water they channeled into a collection cistern. You kind of tip over the edge, and this is what you see going down. And so this is a, this is a picture of what cisterns look like and how they're capturing it. Now, at the end of the rainy season, after it's been raining for six months, the next six months, you will almost get no rain anywhere in the country. And so at the end of the rainy season, your cisterns are full. But as you continue to go through that dry season, it gets lower and lower and lower until you're getting to the very end and you're like, oh yeah, there's really not much water at the bottom because pigeons do their thing. And now all of the dirt and everything has settled and it's actually not water at the bottom, it's just kind of grimy. And so as you're going through this dry season, you are hoping and praying that the living water from heaven will come. And so when we come back to this rainy season and dry season, Sukkot is significant because it's the 15th day of the seventh month and it lasts seven days. Friends, it's the very last week of the dry season. And so when the people are coming together to celebrate God's provision in the past, God's provision in the present, they are pleading with God's pleading for God's provision in the future for the coming rains. And so one of the ways that they celebrated the hope and anticipation that God would provide for them once the rainy season began is that during the first six days of the festival, 
a priest would leave the temple, come all the way down to a place called the Pool of Siloam. He had a golden goblet. He would dip it, or a golden pitcher, he would dip it into the water and then process all the way back up into the temple, up onto the temple mount proper, and then go in and pour it on top of the altar as a way of saying, dear God, we are asking that you bring the living water. And then on the last and great day, the seventh day, this was a very important day. In fact, in Hebrew, it's called Hoshana Rabbah. Let me hear you say Hoshana Rabbah. Now, what does Hoshana sound like? Hosanna, very good. This comes from the Hebrew phrase Hoshia Na, which means save us now. God, save us now. And Rabbah or Rabbah, is great. So this is the great save us now plea day. And so on this particular day, when that priest makes his procession down to the pool of Siloam with the golden pitcher, he is accompanied by priests with, with uh, golden trumpets, blowing the trumpets, with Levites who are singing songs, with thousands of pilgrims who have palm branches and they're shaking them. And the reason why they're doing that is if you shake a palm branch, it sounds like the pouring rain. And then the people are also singing psalms. And so they're going down with the priest. And as the priest processes all the way back up to the temple, they're joining until you get to this culminating moment when the priest is pouring the water again. And this whole area is just packed out. In fact, let me show you an artist's rendering from this perspective over here to give you a feel for what it would have been like at that time. Now, John starts his chapter 7 by telling you this festival is near. And then the rest of John 7 is Jesus eventually going up once the festival begins and he starts teaching here in the temple courts. And he has some run-ins with the Jewish leaders because they're not too fond of what Jesus is up to. And so there is this tension brewing at the temple mount. And then we read this in John 7, 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, right? Hoshana Rabbah, the driest day of the entire year. We read that Jesus stood up and cried out. Jewish leaders sit to teach. The fact that Jesus gets up, you're going, oh my, what's coming? And then it says, and he cried out. What did he cry out at the epic moment of Sukkot? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Amen. Friends, this is the equivalent of a first century mic drop. And in this moment, the people probably did what you did. Utter silence. What did he just say? 
For, for some of the people, it was like they didn't say anything because they were shocked and they didn't know what to do because their joy inside was swelling. For others, the Jewish leaders, what was swelling was anger. And you go, why? Well, Jesus uses this phrase, living water. Remember, the driest day of the year, in the midst of everybody, he uses this phrase, living water. Now, the reason why this is significant is the people have not heard Jesus say this. Now, as someone who has already been reading John, we've actually heard Jesus already mention this. He did so in the context of the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is huge. One, the other, the people don't know about this story. It was just Jesus and the woman at the well. But now this is very, very, very public. When Jesus says living water. Now, quick clarifying piece here is that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And him there is also a general, it's to everybody who's there. But Oftentimes when people read this, depending upon the translation, when it says out of his heart, some have speculated that Jesus is talking, that whoever is dry and thirsty can come and out of that person's heart will flow rivers of living water. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying is that he is the source of living water. That at best we become a conduit to channel out that living water that we receive from Jesus. But Jesus is the source of living water. Now, why is that important? And why would for some people they celebrate it and for some seethe? It's because of how this phrase is used in the Hebrew scriptures. That when we talk about Jesus calling himself living water, there's only two instances of this in the entire gospel stories. It's both in John. And that's fascinating because there are two places, only two places, where God calls himself living water, and they're in the same book as well. It's in Jeremiah. So we have two passages where it's used in connection with God. And it's used in Jeremiah 2.13, and it's also used in Jeremiah 17.13. Let me just show you right now John 2.13. God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the context of this is that we are dealing with Jeremiah, who is a prophet to the southern kingdom. And if you know your history of the Hebrew scriptures, the northern kingdom has already been taken out by Assyria because they haven't lived into their identity and calling that God gave them to represent him well in the world. The southern kingdom is doing the same thing that the northern kingdom is doing. And Jeremiah is coming to say, get your act together and God in the midst of this is talking about what his people have done. And he pulls in this imagery. And for the first time in scripture, God calls himself the fountain of living waters. Now it's through the prophet Jeremiah 
And why this is important is because Jeremiah is working in Jerusalem, but he's from a place called Anatot. And Anatot is about two miles away from Jerusalem, and it sits in the Judean desert. Remember, 70% of the land is desert. And Jeremiah is here, and when he records the words of God in connection to living water, there is an image that would have no doubt come to the fore of everyone's minds. Because everybody knows about a place called En Gedi. And En Gedi is in the midst of the Judean desert, but it doesn't look like this. It actually looks like that. It's an oasis with a perennial spring, a never-ending spring of living water. And so what God is saying here is he says, my people have committed two evils. Here's the first evil, if you will. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God goes, this is what I am like, but my people have forsaken that and instead have chosen that. And God says, what's more is that that's not even a functioning cistern. It's a broken cistern that can hold no water. And the contrast couldn't be more striking. It's like, do I want option A or do I want option B? Nobody's choosing option B. Everybody wants option A. And yet God goes, that's exactly what the people have chosen. They've chosen to go their own way. And they're experiencing a broken cistern that can hold no water. And on the driest day of the year, when everyone is intimately aware of how vulnerable they are and how desperately they are in need of living water, Jesus stands up in the midst of the celebration and screams at the top of his lungs, if you are thirsty, you can come to me and I will give you living water. To those who need the living water, they're saying amen. To those who are angry that Jesus just quoted God's very words as his own, they see it as treason, as blasphemous, and they're seething with anger. But the point that Jesus makes is, this is what I offer. And for some of you, you come in here today and whether it's decisions you have made or life has just happened to you, you find yourself saying, man, that, that right side picture, that's my life right now. I want you to hear loud and clear that the gift of God, the gift of Jesus is living water that this is what Jesus offers, is that when your cistern is cracked, when your life is dehydrated, 
when you just feel like you can't hold it all together. It's at this moment where Jesus goes, will you allow me to be living water to you? I am the source of living water and I want you to experience what I have to give. Well, he makes this pronouncement. And again, some are happy about Jesus claiming to be living water and some are absolutely upset. And it's those who are absolutely upset that put a plan in place to try to trap Jesus at the end of this festival of Sukkot. This is now the beginning of John chapter 8. So if you have a copy of scripture, I'd like to invite you to turn there with me. If you do not have a copy of scripture or you'd rather just listen, that's great because I'm just going to read it. But I just want you to take into consideration, now understanding where the story has been in the previous chapter, what's now happening at the beginning of chapter 8. It actually begins with 53 of chapter 7. It says, then they all went home. So the last and great day has ended. People have gone back home. Because this is one of the three pilgrim festivals that people are streaming up from all over the world, people would have hung around for a little bit. So some people are probably starting to make the trek. Many are hanging around. And it says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, so now we're talking about the day after Sukkot, he appeared again in the temple courts. So this story is taking place in the temple courts. Lots of people are there. In fact, we read about that. It says, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down. Of course, he's a Jewish teacher. He sits to teach. He sat down to teach them. Then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before this massive crowd, publicly shaming her, humiliating her, putting her on display for their own purposes. And they say... To Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And then we're told they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So what's the trap? What's, what's, what are they doing here that's so shady? Well, first of all, the trap is very clear. They have a woman who's called an adultery, and they say, according to the law of Moses, we stone this woman. What do you say, Jesus? Now, if Jesus upholds the Torah, upholds the law, and says, yes, stone her, then now they can go to the Romans. And the Romans are meandering around the Temple Mount. This is actually where all the Roman soldiers stay in the Antonia Fortress. It's in the midst, it's even on the heels of it, but it's still in the midst of this massive holiday season. And the Roman soldiers are making sure that no revolts are going to take place. And the Jewish leaders can go to the Romans because since the Romans are ruling the world and the Israelites are subjected to them, according to Roman law, the Jews were not allowed to utilize capital punishment at this time. And so if Jesus says, yes, uphold the Torah, they can go to the Romans and say, he wants to execute capital punishment right now. 
But then on the other hand, if Jesus goes, do not stone her, then they can say to the people, see, he's not really a teacher. He's not upholding God's word. Can you see the trap? Friends, that's just the beginning of the trap. There are two other pieces to the trap. Here's the next piece. According to the passages they're talking about, which are found in Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22, it says that the woman, if she's caught in adultery that can be stoned, has to be a married woman. And if she is a married woman, which the understanding is she probably is in this story, then according to the passages they're quoting, both she and the dude who commit adultery with her are supposed to be presented before the crowd. Where's the dude? It's no stocky. He's not there. So we already realize just how shady this trap continues to go. But it doesn't stop there. Because we are in the midst of festival season. We are in the seventh month. Sukkot is not the only festival taking place in this month. On the very first day of the seventh month, you have what is called Rosh Hashanah. It is the new year. And then on the 10th day of the seventh month, you have Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement. It is the most holiest of days. It's the only day during the year when the high priest is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people to God on Yom Kippur. God forgives the sins of the people. But there's another aspect to Yom Kippur that we read about in the Mishnah, this Jewish text that comes a little bit after the time of Jesus, but reflects a period around the time of Jesus. And in the Mishnah, we read this. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, atones for a person's transgressions against God, but it does not atone for his transgressions against his fellow man until he appeases him. So your sins on Yom Kippur are forgiven as far as the collective people with God, but the people realize that in order for this to work, you had to forgive the sins of one another. And so today, we have what are called the 10 days of awe, and religious Jews around the world will seek out anyone they think they may have wronged during that year to ask for forgiveness before Yom Kippur. Now, because we have this in the Mishnah, there was probably some kind of process going on where people were doing this in Jesus's day, that they were forgiving one another the sins against each other before the day in which God was forgiving them. This happens on Yom Kippur. And then you have on the 15th day of the seventh month is our festival of Sukkot. And the seventh day, the great and last day of the festival, is the 21st day. And that is, again, Hoshana Rabbah, or Hoshana Rabbah. Now, David Stern is a brilliant New Testament messianic 
Jewish scholar, which means he's Jew, he believes Jesus is the Messiah, and he has a brilliant commentary called the Jewish New Testament Commentary. And in there, he highlights a Jewish tradition that helps us to understand just how explosive things are in this moment. Notice what he writes. He says, Hoshana Rabbah, that's the last and great day, was understood to be the absolutely final chance to have one's sins for the year forgiven. On Rosh Hashanah, the new year, that's the first day of the month, one asks to be inscribed in the book of life. And on Yom Kippur, that's the 10th day, the day of atonement, one hopes to have that inscription sealed. Yet in Jewish tradition, there remained opportunity for forgiveness up to Hoshana Rabbah which means there is a grace period, but that grace period ends on that last day of Hoshana Rabbah. Friends, what day is the woman brought to Jesus? The next day. She has no grace left. And they parade her out in front of Jesus in the midst of a tension-ridden environment with a massive crowd, and they say to Jesus, so what are you going to do about this? And what does Jesus do? Oh, buckle up, friends. (laughs) But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger as you do in such situations. <laughs> and so he's, he's doing something in the dirt. And then it says this, when they kept on questioning him, it's like they're not picking up on what's going on. Jesus straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then it says, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then we read verse nine. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman um, with the woman still standing there. And then Jesus stood up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And you go, What just happened right there? In the midst of these Jewish leaders who've hatched this plan that has all of these layers to trap Jesus, he gets down, he does something, he says a few short statements, if you will, goes right back down, and then they just whoosh, leave. And you go, what happened in this moment? What is Jesus doing in the dirt? Well, the interpretations run quite a spectrum. Some go, well, Jesus is doodling in the dirt. It's like just kind of like buying some time. 
Um, others believe that Jesus is writing the names of the mistresses of the Jewish leaders. Maybe some think that Jesus is constructing an idea for an Etch-A-Sketch. I mean, I don't know. Now, I actually do think that we can understand what's happening in this moment. Because I believe the text actually tells us what just happened. You see, for the last seven days, the people have been intimately aware. They have a parade ceremony where they are begging God as the source of living water to bring living water. Which if there are only two passages in the Hebrew Bible that talks about God being the source of living water, do you think these passages have been on their mind for the last seven days? Yes, in unison, go like this. Yes, I mentioned before that there are two passages that are used in connection with God about living water. Jeremiah 2.13 and Jeremiah 17.13. So let's look at the other passage and we're going to begin in verse 10 and notice what God says about the people of Israel and particularly the Jewish leaders at the time. He says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And then a few verses later, we have this. O oh Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Amen. Jesus has just proclaimed the prior day, I am the source of living water and you are forsaking it right now. You've brought this woman before me. You are shaming her. You are humiliating her. You are using her as a pawn in your chess game to get me into checkmate. Well, that isn't going to happen. And Jesus drops down and he starts writing, what? Their names? And they're not picking up on it. They probably don't care what Jesus is doing in the dirt. They're so angry. And then when Jesus stands up, and he says, let any of you who is without sin cast the first stone. They're without questioning, without question, connecting into the larger context in Jeremiah, which talks about the Jewish leaders not living in tune with God's will and way for leading the people. And just to make sure that they've understood, Jesus goes back down a second time. And it says, at this, they started to walk away one by one. Jesus upended their trap, threw it in their face, and they were met with the reality that they were forsaking God. And they knew it. And they left. And then you have this amazing moment where in the midst of a viewing crowd, all of the leaders who have been trying to put Jesus in a trap have left. 
and a woman is standing right here. And Jesus stands up and with compassion and grace, he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She goes, no one. Jesus goes, neither do I. Now go and leave your life of sin. See, friends, the day after the last day of Sukkot, the rains were to begin. Living water was to appear. And living water, Jesus appeared and gave love and grace to a dry and desolate woman whose window for grace, according to the people, had passed. And Jesus, with compassion, with grace, with mercy, with love, just pours living water on this dry and cracking cistern of this woman's life. And I absolutely love this moment. It's one of my favorite moments of what Jesus does because you see the heart and compassion of Jesus on display at the most intense moments that he encounters. And friends, what I love about what Jesus has done here is that he does not condemn her, but also in the same token, he doesn't condone her actions. Is she guilty? Yes. Go and leave your life of sin no more. She is living in a life that is causing brokenness to her and to those around her. And Jesus recognizes it. But what John has already told us in the very first part of his gospel in John 1, when John introduces Jesus onto the scene, it says that Jesus came with grace and truth. That when Jesus does not condemn her, he just showers her with grace. But when he says, go and leave your life of sin no more, he's also saying, here's the truth of the matter. This is not the best way to live. And for many people, they struggle with how do you live in a balance of grace and truth. And this is what makes Jesus in my mind so unbelievably brilliant and compelling. That we could say this, that Jesus had an astonishing ability to love broken people extravagantly without ever watering down his values and convictions. He accepted them where they were at and compellingly guided them towards wholeness. It's a hard balance to strike and yet it's one Jesus expects of his followers. That for some of us, we want to lead with truth. Look what your life has become. I told you so. Do you not realize what you are doing? And people whose lives look like that don't just sit there going, yeah, I love my life. Like they don't need us to take our thumb and to stick it onto their broken cistern and wedge it in there and say, told you so is that Jesus led 
with grace and mercy and love and compassion. That Jesus knows that what people need first and foremost is a showering of living water. And once you've led with grace and you have a voice to speak truth, that's where the discernment comes into play of knowing when truth is introduced into the moment. And it may not be that moment. It may be two months from then. It may be two years from then. And by the way, if you're leading with grace in order to get to truth, that is love with an agenda, and that's not love. And what Jesus is inviting us into is how do we do the same thing he did, where we emulate that grace and that truth? that we always recognize that we lead with being living water and that we don't lead with a sense of truth that basically says to the person, what are you doing? That maybe the question we can ask ourselves is where are our names written in the dust? Who in our life are we not just showering with living water? For some of us, it's going to be who's going to be around the Thanksgiving table here in a few weeks. We all got that crazy cousin. We all got that aunt or uncle. We have that, peop- that person who's in our workplace. We have those classmates that are at our schools. And the question becomes, where is Jesus challenging me and you today? that we haven't been leading with living water. Because the one thing we can never forget is that all of our lives at some point have been the image on the right. And that Jesus has offered us what is on the left. And what we can often do is forget that we were there once or that we fall back into that. And the invitation is to be reminded of all of the many ways that when we were caught in our act of adultery, whatever that was, that Jesus showed us grace, mercy, love, kindness, that he showered us with living water. And that as we continually go back to the source of living water in our daily lives and we ask Jesus to be merciful and gracious and kind and to give us living water, that as we experience that overwhelming showering of Jesus' living water, that we recognize in that moment we are then called to emulate Jesus. And as we take it in, we become a conduit and Jesus wants us to pass that on to others who need to experience that living water as well. That's what it means to follow Jesus in grace and in truth. And we need wisdom to do that well. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to do that. We need the wisdom and guidance to know how to do the truth. But friends, don't ever fail to lead with grace because this is a God who has showered us with his living water, that he wants to shower us all with this living water. But this is also a Jesus who says, if you're my follower, then this is what you need to be to others 
as well. That outside of the cross and the empty tomb, I believe this is the greatest imagery of what God is like to us. And I also believe it's the best picture of what we as the church are supposed to be to other people. Let's pray about that. God, we want to say thank you and we want to ask that you would work in us so that we can become a conduit of living water. That it is such a hard balance to strike and yet it's one that Jesus demonstrated over and over and over again how to do it well. God, we pray for those who are here this morning whose lives just feel like a cracked and broken cistern. That whether it's decisions they've made or decisions that have just been made at them or life has happened to them and they just find themselves just so dehydrated today. God, would they just experience you anew? Would you shower that living water upon them? And may they experience your grace. And God, for us all, as we leave here today, may we never forget this story. May we never forget this image. May we never forget this calling to live a life where we are called to channel that living water and allow it to flow to those around us. That if our names are written in the dust, that we would come before you and say, dear God, I am so sorry. Take your living water and wash it over the dust that currently has my name so that I can no longer think in terms of dust, but think in terms of water. Would you give us the ability to do that today? God, we love you. We bless you. We thank you. And everybody said, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.